Reimbursements for vitreoretinal surgery have plummeted in the past decade. How dire is the situation? I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chris Wanis, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Brynmar Communications. Dr. John Thompson updates listeners on the trends in Medicare reimbursement for a variety of vitreoretinal surgeries, imaging tests, and ENM visits, all of which have implications for the future of care and access to providers. And Dr. Raymond Diessi discusses the risks and benefits to using large language models such as ChatGPT in a retina clinic. How will large language models better serve providers and patients? And what drawbacks might create more confusion than needed? Keep listening to learn more. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about scientific papers, the latest data, the pivotal studies, the real-world outcomes trials, and that's for a good reason. Those studies are the bedrock of the modern science of retina. But science does not occur in a vacuum, and retina specialists can't practice unless they keep an eye on their reimbursement. To that end, we're turning to Dr. John Thompson, who spoke about shifts to Medicare reimbursement for vitreoretinal procedures in a talk at this year's AAO annual meeting. Dr. Thompson practices at Retina Specialists in Baltimore, and he joins us today. Dr. Thompson, welcome to New Retina Radio. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. You started your talk by discussing reimbursement for retinal detachment back when you graduated fellowship. What was reimbursement then, and what is it now? Well, in the 1980s, the reimbursement for a straightforward retinal detachment repair was about $3,000. If you adjust that for inflation in 2023, then that would actually be $8,400 right now. But in fact, the same surgery by Medicare pays about $1,180. Uh, in 2023 dollars. So we're in a situation where we're only making about 15%. Now, it's true that surgery has become quicker, but I can assure you that we don't take 15% of the time to fix a retinal detachment repair now compared to the 1980s. Yeah, this seems like a really big disconnect. What happened? Well, what happened is that our healthcare costs in Medicare continue to rise And the government is having trouble doing that, paying for all of these new procedures, new drugs, and everything else. And so the tendency has been to really ratchet down, particularly on procedures. And so over the past 20 years, there really have been substantial decreases in the reimbursement for a wide variety of procedures. Let's zoom way out and talk about how CMS determines the reimbursement cost for any procedure, whether it's a vitreoretinal procedure or otherwise. Well, what the AMA does, and this is uh, through a committee called the RUC Committee, which is the Relative Value Committee. Um, And this is a detailed organization with members from a broad uh, spectrum of medicine. And uh, when they value procedures, they send out surveys to physicians that perform that procedure, such as a retinal detachment repair. And the surgeons then respond to how much time it takes to do the procedure itself, how much time before the procedure to, say, greet the patient, uh, scrub, uh, change into you know scrub uniforms, and then how much time it takes after the procedure. Most of these procedures for retinal detachment repair and the major surgical procedures are what are called 90-day globals. So it means that the care for that patient related to their surgery for 90 days is also included in that fee. 
So there may be several office visits also embedded in that fee. So these various components make up uh, the entire piece and the time for those various parts of the procedure and pre and post time are all added up. And then they're compared to other procedures. For example, it may be compared to a hernia repair or uh, having a uh, pacemaker implanted or a cardiac bypass. And uh, so the RUC tries to equalize things in such a way that a physician doing the same intensity of a procedure for this amount of time would then have the same value uh, and they would be reimbursed the same in Medicare. And the idea was to try to level the playing field across all of medicine because previously there was what was called sort of usual historical values, which were often skewed where some specialties might get paid better and other specialties uh, paid less. And so the RUC will recommend a particular RVU unit, uh, relative value unit, and uh, then that is converted by what's called the conversion factor that Medicare has every year, which is usually somewhere in the low 30s. And that RVU, along with the malpractice expense and the practice expenses to perform that procedure in the office or in the operating room, are all added up. And that results in the fee that a physician receives for that particular procedure. So like you said, this is an attempt to level the playing field across specialties. It's a complex system, but these are complex procedures. But it sounds like there are some issues with this whole format. Can you tell me about them? Well, the the biggest problem uh, is that uh, there's been a lot of pressure to cut down on the values of procedures, and all procedures are not the same. And uh, Medicare has a fixed pot of money uh, based on the number of beneficiaries. And so what happens at the RUC is that the various specialties have to compete for a piece of the pie. And it's very much like uh, having a large family and you have a cake or a piece of pie and, and who gets to determine how big the pieces are. And the RUC works hard to try to make it as fair as possible. But the net effect is that procedures, particularly surgical procedures, have been devalued substantially over uh, the last 20 years. Uh, and the private insurers, although they're not required to use the Medicare values, and they're often different than the Medicare values, if Medicare reduces the reimbursement for a particular surgical procedure, most of the time the private insurers are also within two or three years going to decrease the reimbursement because they use this also as a yardstick as to how they should be paying for various procedures. And it's typical that Medicaid will pay even less than Medicare, at least in most states, uh, for various procedures. And so they're often at the low end of the reimbursement. I see. I see. So uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that faster surgeries is one of the reasons that um, reimbursement has gone down. Can you walk me through this? Because this seems counterintuitive. You think that they'd want to incentivize faster surgeries. Well, the, the problem is, is that this entire process is very much based on times. And so if the time perform a retinal procedure, say, goes from 75 minutes to 60 minutes, well, that means that that procedure is going to be compared to other procedures that take 60 minutes rather than procedures that take 75 minutes. And so the net effect is that that's going to reduce the RVU and hence reduce the reimbursement. So I agree it is a perverse process in that uh, we physicians are basically penalized for doing 
uh, surgeries faster. Uh, and uh, many of these faster surgeries, of course, mean patients recover quicker uh, because the operative time has decreased. But unfortunately, this is the trend that we've had to experience. You talked specifically about some procedures that have seen significant reductions in reimbursement from 2011 to 2020. Can you go over a few of those procedures? Well, one of the things, uh, pan-retinal laser, which you use a lot in diabetic retinopathy, has gone down by about 33%. It also uh, decreased from a 90-day global to a 10-day global, which also reduces the reimbursement. Uh, physician uh, Vitrectomy with uh, ILM removal, which we do for macular holes and some epiretinal membranes, also decreased about 31%. Um, mainly due to decreases in time. Repairing a retinal detachment by vitrectomy also decreased 32%. Uh, some of our most complicated surgeries in retina are complicated retinal detachment repairs with proliferative vitreoretinopathy retinopathy or giant retinal tears, and those have also gone down about 30%. So some of our mainstay uh, procedures that we perform have really reduced by about a third over the past uh, really 10 years between 2011 and 2020. And there's also been reductions for imaging over that same time period. Is that right? Yes. Again, the reason is, is that we're quicker at performing the images and quicker at reading the images. Um, OCTs have gone down about 10 percent. Uh, ultrasonography, what's called a B-scan ultrasound, uh, has gone down a much more substantial amount between 23 and 55 percent. And one of the reasons that the decrease was large was that this uh, procedure had not been valued for a while. So it had been valued many years ago. Uh, so the time went down and hence the reimbursement went down. Uh, Indocyanin green angiograms, a special type of angiogram, had a 27% reduction and was bundled with fluorescein angiograms. Fluorescein angiograms went down less, but the problem is, is that one of the factors is that when we perform one of these procedures, the physician has to buy the dye to do the procedure. And it turns out that the cost of fluorescein dye has gone up substantially. And so there actually was an analysis out of Vanderbilt that indicated that uh, offices actually lose money from performing fluorescein angiograms because of the increased cost of the fluorescein dye. Uh, we try to petition Medicare to increase the values, and if we can show invoices have increased, they will increase the value somewhat. Uh, but this is just another example of how if you're not really careful looking at your cost of performing services, you can actually end up uh, doing a money-losing service uh, because of changes in cost. Many of our eye drops that we use to dilate patients and we use routinely in the office have also gone up substantially due to increased pharmaceutical prices. We were talking about reimbursement rates going down between uh, 2011 and 2020. And then in January of 2021, the relative value scale was sidelined in favor of a different reimbursement scheme. Can you talk me through what that new system is? Yes, we actually had a relative value scale that was the basis of all Medicare reimbursement until January of 2021. And what CMS decided to do was to give an increase to the office base, what are called E&M codes, which are typical, uh, simple, intermediate, complex office visits. But the office visits that were embedded in the 10 and 90 global procedures, such as 
uh, say, performing laser to a tear or doing a vitrectomy or retinal detachment repair, those were not given the same increase. And what this did was essentially destroyed the whole relative value scale. And the net effect was to devalue all procedures that had postoperative visits relative to office visits that are not associated with the surgery. And I will say that the AMA RUC vigorously opposed this idea. They have complained to CMS that this destroyed the relative value between surgical procedures versus medical office visits. But unfortunately, CMS has turned a deaf ear to that and uh, it's gone through as is, even though we've tried to change it for the past two years. Um, and so th this has been sort of a blow to all procedures. And it's just another reason that procedures are not reimbursed relative to office visits uh, as they had in the past. So procedures are down and EM visits are up. Imaging is down. This is all very important. Um, but I also know that retina clinics are functioning. They're not all bankrupt. So there must be some bright spots in reimbursement. Where are those? Well, the bright spots is in primary care, and I call it primary retina care. And many of our patients, thankfully, unlike some surgical specialties like general surgery, where the general surgeons spend most of their time in the operating room, we are fortunate to spend more, much more of our time in the office. And uh, doing routine low-complexity office visits for patients with macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, patients with vitreous detachments, flashes and floaters, Plaquenil checkups for patients that are on Plaquenil, these are all reimbursed better now because of the increase that Medicare gave in the ENM visits. So to the extent that a retina doctor can function like a primary care doctor and see uh, patients in the office for routine care, that's actually reimbursed better now than spending time in the operating room doing complex uh, surgery. And so really this primary care retina has become fundamental to the financial well-being in our practices. Yeah, it seems to me if I were to imagine some platonic ideal of a retina specialist who's a rational economic actor, they might say that they're going to stop offering complex retina surgeries in favor of just office visits, given that they're reimbursed better. Are we at any risk of that happening? Or is that just something that retina specialists won't do? Well, I think it's a, a real risk. And just to give you an idea of the magnitude of things, the work values for the ENM codes that we commonly use, 99212, 91213, 99214, 99215, increased by 23 to 28%. So these were substantial increases um, that occurred. And so what we have to do as physicians is to spend more time in the office. And in our Baltimore metropolitan area, this is real. I know of three solo retina specialists in the past four years who have stopped doing surgery, and they just refer their patients away that need a retinal detachment repair or uh, with a macular hole or with an endophthalmitis because they've realized, particularly with the difficulty with OR access, that it's just too hard to get an emergency patient to the operating room. So it was no longer financially viable for them to cancel a half day of patients to take a patient to the operating room to do this. And this same thing is happening even in larger groups where sometimes uh, the cases are getting uh, shunted to the doctor that's in the operating room rather than whichever doctor saw the patient in the office 
because it's just so inefficient to try to do emergency care now uh, and to cancel patients to go to the operating room. So I think there is going to be an access problem in the future as fewer and fewer retina specialists are willing to handle uh, the emergency retinal procedures, uh, surgeries in particular. Yeah, that makes sense to me, but that's also a frightening scenario. Um, well, Dr. Thompson, thank you for coming on the show, explaining this this whole complex scheme and educating our listeners about it. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. I would like to start this segment by saying that the pre-production, live production, and post-production of this interview were created entirely by humans for humans. But how much longer does that last? Large language models, or LLMs, are here. The doomsdayers are saying that LLMs will replace doctors, but the more likely outcome is that LLMs are a useful tool that will offer a number of benefits and open the door to a number of problems. Dr. Raymond Ayezi is here to help us explore those possibilities. He's a vitreoretinal surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Ayezi, welcome to New Retina Radio. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Give me a high-level overview of large language models. Well, large language models are new to, to us outside of the computer world. They've been around for quite some time, but very recently, uh, technological advances, largely by Google, and then adopted by other companies like OpenAI, uh, have made large language models tremendously useful to regular folks. Um, what we've learned is that these software tools can process language remarkably well. Um, they can write computer code in multiple different computer languages. They can recognize objects and create images and write text. And so what it's done is it's transformed the way we've become familiar with how we interact with machines. We can now talk to a machine as if we were talking to a person and get a very cogent human-like response back. And this is the stuff that science fiction films have been made out of for decades, but we're, we're experiencing it right now. And so we're at the, at the cusp of a, of a major transition in, uh, in computer technology. This is going to be larger than the internet. It's gonna be larger than the invention of the personal computer. Uh, large language models and generative AI are going to affect us in every domain that we exist. They're going to be in our handheld devices. They're going to be on our computers. The cash register at the grocery store is going to have an AI in it. Ultimately, this is going to affect all facets of society. You will likely be talking to your car uh, and talking to your cell phone beyond what we're, we're, we're accustomed to um, at, the, at the present time. I see. And it seems like ChatGPT is the most uh, recognizable household name for this. Is that right? That's true. Um, but if you, if, you, if you do a deep dive, you'll find that there are many, many other models um, that are as large as ChatGPT, um, notably um, <clears throat> a company called Anthropic uh, has a, a large language model called Claude2. Uh, and its claim to fame was the fact that Claude2 could take in a uh, a few hundred pages of text where ChatGPT was formerly limited. More recently, as of, I think, November 7th, when OpenAI had its first developer meeting, uh, they expanded ChatGPT to be able to take in uh, a few hundred pages of text uh, at this point now. So uh, Claude 2 by Anthropic is a big one. 
And I think one of the real exciting uh, developments is that there are many, many smaller large language models that we can run on our own personal computers that work really well. And the benefit of these is that they are not um, public domain. The data that you send to companies like OpenAI is going to be used for training. Um, these systems are not HIPAA compliant, and so we can't uh, send personal medical information across uh, to uh, OpenAI to use and process by ChatGPT. But we can do that with local models. Yeah, so let's focus on some of those other models. Your talk at AAO specifically talked about how LLMs might affect retina practice um, and also uh, how it might affect patients. Let's look at patients first. We hear about Dr. Google, who's the least reliable clinician on the internet. Is there a chance that patients are going to use LLMs to try to grab medical information? Absolutely, and they currently are doing so. So we're, we're going to become familiar with a term, perhaps Dr. GPT, you know, and it'll be deep GPT du jour. Um, so many of these are cropping up. And I think it's important to understand why GPTs are becoming a source of knowledge. Well, it turns out that in order to train these neural networks to process language and interact with humans as if they were human-like, uh, companies have had to leverage massive quantities of data. So this data comes from the internet, it comes from books, it comes from uh, websites that create, that contain data sets, it comes from other proprietary databases, magazines, printed media like newspapers, it comes from social media like Facebook uh, and others. And so um, it turns out that humans encode knowledge in their language. And as a result of training these large language models to recognize and process language, they also encode knowledge as a consequence of that training. So that's a, a, what we call an emergent behavior, meaning they train these models to, to be able to process language and interact with us in a naturalistic chat-like manner. But these things got smart. <laughs> and, um, and that knowledge was never really curated. So uh, for example, you know, I showed during my talk at AAO that the uh, OCAP performance in retina was 0% uh, by ChatGPT, uh, which has subsequently be, been changed, I heard, more recently, where they obviously trained ChatGPT with some retina information. Uh, and then I asked ChatGPT with um, Dolly, Dolly3 to, to generate a picture of a retinal detachment, and it was a sort of a horror show-like image that uh, resembled an eye, um, perhaps from another planet. And so these systems are fantastic at what they've been trained to do, but outside of their wheelhouse, um, they, their performance drops uh, quite remarkably. Um, and so patients are, are going to interact, are going to learn to interact with these generative pre-trained transformers, these GPTs, they're going to start talking with them. They're going to become friends with them. And they may ask uh, for medical information from them. And the fact is, is that retina specialists need to recognize that this is a random source of information. If there happens to be a whole lot of information in a particular topic on Facebook, whether that information is correct or not, uh, ChatGPT will, will uh, confidently report this as the answer 
and patients could potentially be misled. I see. So this is a data in, data out problem. If the quality of the input is low, the quality of the output will also be low. Absolutely. But the other, the flip side or the corollary of that is that if we use high quality data, we could potentially get high quality outputs. And so this is where uh, the concept of fine tuning comes in, where you can take an existing large language model and add additional training to it and make it smart in a given area, meaning you can give it some knowledge in a, in a particular area. To be very assured of this, uh, corporations use something called RAG or retrieval augmented generation, where information from let's say their user manuals uh, or their company policies and procedures are loaded into a database and the GPT then looks at that database for its sole source of knowledge. So the GPT itself is used to process language and give that user interface. Um, and the source of the knowledge comes from a curated set of data that the company produces. And this could be a means by which we, um, we employ LLMs in medicine so that we can assure the accuracy of the output. Yeah, I'm curious how uh, LLMs might be used by doctors in the clinic. I know that you know we, we can imagine what they might do and our imagination is limitless, but there's also going to be some real limitations to using an LLM in the clinic. Can you talk to me about some of those limitations? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, current um, large language models from big companies like OpenAI uh, cannot be used with uh, patient data. Um, it would be a breach of that. In fact, Hackers have found ways of exposing data sets that have been uploaded to OpenAI, um, revealing you know, people's CVs and other things. Uh, so we wouldn't want to do that. Um, I think the, the other challenge is that these large language models overconfidently report an answer, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, I think one of the first examples of that was when uh, individuals we're asking ChatGPT to write papers for them and then provide references. And the references were like totally bogus. They, they didn't exist. The, the authors were, were, were created, the, the, the titles for the papers were created, but they were using actual journals and making up um, various reference uh, page numbers, et cetera. And so you, you, you really can't you know, use an LLM to provide medical decision-making uh, or medical information in any reliable sort of way because they the systems are producing a statistical output and they're trained to be uh, expounding confidence. And um, the reality is, is that they're not doctors. So I don't think we're gonna be using ChatGPT to provide you know, medical diagnostic information or, or otherwise. A lot of these systems are limited in the time frame for which they were trained. So they have cutoff dates. And updating the training on these large language models is ridiculously expensive, both in terms of money and in terms of our environmental impact. Uh, ChatGPT was trained with the same amount of electricity that runs the, entire, the entirety of New York City for an entire month. Uh, so a huge amount of energy. In fact, many of these large companies are investing in uh, small portable nuclear reactors to power up these massive data centers required to host all the graphics processing units necessary to train something like uh, ChatGPT4. Uh, even uh, the week that I 
gave this lecture at the AAO, the federal government released some executive orders uh, looking at the kinds of controls needed for these large language models in assuring that uh, companies that are using massive amounts of computational power uh, are actually submitting uh, data to the federal government to assure that they're not releasing uh, the kinds of GPTs that could be damaging to our society. So I think the government is getting involved in certain regulations, and it would not surprise me uh, that either the medical community or the government would, um, would start to control um, the use of GPTs in, uh, in our field, in medicine. So a lot of those regulations might apply to future GPTs or future LLMs. What about right now? Are there any LLMs that are actually being used in clinics today? And if so, how? Well, uh, I would imagine that several physicians out there have um, kicked the tires, so to speak, on using ChatGPT to generate things like patient information. You know, uh, I've done so. I, I've uh, created handouts for patients that describe age-related macular degeneration, the role of nutrition and vitamins, AREDS2, et cetera. And these systems actually have a tremendous amount of knowledge built into them. And uh, as long as a, an expert is reviewing their output, you know, these things can produce patient information documents in a multitude of languages. Uh, and so as long as we read them and edit them and make sure they're accurate, uh, that can really facilitate generating patient information or patient education uh, packets. Uh, certainly, that kind of, of information can be sent out to referring physicians um, to engage them as well. One thing I can say is that, you know, the multilingual support really helps in terms of, you know, if you happen to have a patient that speaks Russian, you can translate into Russian instantaneously and get a document they would understand. Um, but these are sort of uh, parlor tricks. I mean, ultimately, we know how to type. We have Word. We have other editors. And we don't need ChatGPT to write us patient information. Um, and so really, it's not going to make any difference. It's, it's a, a curiosity, so to speak. I would become very excited if tools like ChatGPT uh, would be effective in summarizing a patient's medical history or giving me an, a draft of a note that fits my template for writing notes that, in, that has collated all the data that I need and summarizes a plan so that I can edit it. And so I'm not the data entry clerk that I currently am, where I'm constantly entering data, or constantly editing dates of pre-existing notes, et cetera. It seems to me that you know an, a disproportionate amount of my time is spent entering uh, medical information into the, the medical record. And many practices have, uh, have addressed this problem by getting scribes in their clinics where individuals will listen to an interaction and will get the, the data typed in for them. Um, I mean, this is 2023 and we've got chat GPTs crawling all over the place. We really need to have these things writing our notes for us so that we can appropriately edit them and spend more face time uh, with our patients. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, scribes uh, at first were designed to do just that, right? To take those notes and then allow the physician to have more time with their patient. If an LLM ends up, let's say, replacing a scribe or supplementing a scribe, uh, you can see the, the dynamics of the clinic really changing. What about things like chart support or even assisting in research? Are those realistic possibilities? Are they in the near future or are they 
some sort of, you know, fancy ideation that might occur sometime vaguely in the future? Oh, I, I do think that we're going to see these emerge. I mean, examples of how this could help in research is that um, these systems are good at summarizing chart notes. And so, for example, if we're uh, looking for patients with specific inclusion exclusion criteria for clinical trials, um, we could use these kinds of software tools to screen uh, the patients in our clinic on a given day so that we remind to remind us to you know offer them enrollment in a clinical trial. So I do think that uh, that that's going to be uh, very helpful and, and it's a simple application of such a powerful language processing tool. And we mentioned all the charting support that these things could potentially do for us. So I think what we need to do as retina specialists is commandeer this technology. We, we should not allow this technology to be misapplied. We should direct the development of these systems and, um, and assure that our practices are, are, are helped by them. Um, I don't think that um, replacing scribes is necessarily the goal. Perhaps scribes have an important role in other aspects. Maybe they don't need to be editing or entering as much information as they are. I personally would like to see uh, our patient flows improved by technology assist. Um, and with or without a scribe, I think these large language tools could potentially help that. Um, and perhaps we can engage our patients to a greater extent with this technology assist as well. Well, certainly sounds exciting. There's a lot of possibilities here, and hopefully you can give us an update again next year on LLMs, specifically in retina. Dr. Ayezi, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. My pleasure, Scott. That concludes New Retina Radio's coverage of the AAO 2023 annual meeting that occurred a few weeks ago in San Francisco. But as you know, we have plenty of other content, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks.